This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Piccini. everyone, Giovanni Piccini here of the GP Soccer Podcast. Welcome to everyone uh, in my, well, my quite literally, folks, global audience. Great to have you uh, back on board tuning into the show. Now, listen, if you sense a, a little bit of heightened uh, anxiety or, or, or excitement coming out of my voice, and I know you can't see me, but if you have a little bit of a, you know, a spring in my verbal step, so to speak, it's because, well... I'm heading off to see Bruce Springsteen once again. I've already got, uh, let's see, what have I got? i got three shows under my belt. First one in Boston back in March. And then it was over to, uh, down to Washington, D.C. in early April. And then over to Long Island uh, for the third show. Uh, and now I'm heading to, drumroll please, heading over to Rome, Italy to see him at Circus Maximus. Um, that's a big bucket list item for me to see Bruce Springsteen in Europe. Um, the European fans, from by all accounts, are are a far more excited bunch, shall we say, when it comes to shows, in particular Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, we see him here in the United States. People love him. People are excited, and it's a it's a you know very uh, you know great crowd, great energy. But there's something about those European audiences, from what I'm told, uh, that bring it to a whole other level. And I've always wanted to experience that. Being Italian, I get to go back to Italy. I have friends, I have family there, uh, and obviously I'm going to make a little bit more of a vacation than just flying in to see Bruce Springsteen at Circus Maximus, Maximus and then just flying back home. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty jacked up about all of this uh, to see Bruce at Circus Maximus. So uh, I'm calling today's episode, ladies and gentlemen, my setup show. And well, well what the heck does that mean? Well, uh, starting next week and in the following week, uh, and I kind of teased this already, I will be devoting two episodes to violence in youth sports. Next week's episode will be violence in youth sports, uh, the contributing factors. And then the following week will be violence in youth sports solutions. Now, I'm calling this the setup because I had the opportunity oh, a few years ago to have a, a discussion with a woman by the name of Mary Fitzgerald. And she was a, a teacher and um, a soccer official and uh, as I recall, you know, um, why I, I reached out to her to have a discussion, well, she did an op-ed in the Boston Globe, uh, which was entitled, Why I Stopped Officiating Soccer. And it really resonated with me. So I had to reach out and find out why. We had a great conversation. So I'm, I'm saying this is a setup show because I'm going to share with you today in the interview block of, of today's show, my, I share with you my conversation I had with Mary Fitzgerald because a lot of it will, will kind of set the table, so to speak, for the next two weeks, where I'll be doing a deeper dive with an outstanding panel, by the way, uh, on the issue of violence in youth sports. My panel that I have convened, Skip Gilbert, CEO of USYS, Mike Watala, Executive Editor at Soccer America, and Dr. Bill Steffen, Assistant Professor of Sports Science at Wingate University. And, and you know, interestingly, I guess, a lot of the things that she and I talked about a few years back 
are the very same things that I will be discussing with my great panel in the upcoming weeks. It's something that's sadly it's been around for, you know, for for quite some time. So yeah, again, I'm calling it my my setup episode for the for the next two. I, I think you're gonna certainly gonna enjoy um, you know hearing my conversation with Mary, and then over the next next couple of weeks, uh, where we do a, a very specific, very focused uh, shows on uh, violence in youth sports. Uh, in the third block, uh, we, you, we will, I will make sure that you uh, have your European and EPL update. Uh, I will be doing that once again this week while my good friend Rob Ellis is away. So in the, in the third block, uh, we, we'll go over all the things that have been happening very recently uh, over in the land of English Premier League and European soccer. So short and sweet today. I got my Bruce Springsteen announcement out of the way. I'm still kind of jumping up and down. Well, well not really. If I was jumping up and down, I, this wouldn't sound very good. But uh, we're going to break for a commercial message. And on the other side, um, we're going to, you'll enjoy my conversation I had with Mary Fitzgerald, Giovanni Pacini, all jacked up for Bruce Springsteen. Get ready for a commercial. I'll see you and hear from, you'll hear from me on the other side. Cancer. We all know someone whose life has been impacted by this deadly disease. A friend, a colleague, a family member, someone in your community. No one is immune from it. But as each day passes, the fight continues to find a cure that one day will eradicate cancer from all our lives. One of the ways you can join the fight is through Red Card Cancer. Its mission is a call to action to help defeat the world's biggest opponent by uniting the global game of soccer in the fight against cancer. Together with the American Cancer Society, the soccer community is raising money and awareness for cancer research. If you or your soccer organization would like to support the American Cancer Society and Red Card Cancer, head over to redcardcanceracs.org as well as redcardcancer.org. Red Card Cancer, where a cure is our goal. Hi, this is Gerard Jones, founder of You Learnbly, and you're listening to Giovanni Pacini on the GP Soccer Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. My name is Giovanni Pacini, as you all very well know. Um, as I noted in the earlier segment, or the last segment, uh, we have our, our guest today, Mary Fitzgerald, and she and I are going to talk about, uh, sadly, uh, an issue that is rearing its very ugly head on our sports fields, both far, you know, far and wide. Um, kind of briefly, in terms of an introduction, Mary Fitzgerald has been a teacher in the Newton Public Schools at the Bigelow Middle School in Newton, Massachusetts. Mary has a master's degree in biomechanics from UMass Amherst, and she's currently working on another master's degree in organizational leadership. Mary officiates women's lacrosse at the youth, high school, and collegiate level, and she currently serves as the vice president of ratings and development for the Eastern Massachusetts Women's Lacrosse Officials Association. And up until very, very recently, for about 10 years, she officiated high school soccer. So, Mary, uh, welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast. Hello, Giovanni. Thanks for having me. My, pl- I guess it's you know it's my pleasure. It's funny. I kind of rehearse these things in my head, Mary, when I when I have a guest, and and typically I say my pleasure, but in a funny sort of way, and I and I, I hope this resonates with you in a funny sort of way. I really wish I didn't have to interview you. You know, sure. Uh, you know what I'm I saying? Know, given, yeah, actually, given the subject matter, I guess is is. Is really what you're talking about. Exactly, and if I didn't have to, you know, if I didn't have to interview, it, it, it would have meant that this issue uh, regarding behavior on our sports fields didn't exist. But sadly, it does. So, 
indeed, I'm glad that you're on the show, certainly. Um, I wish I didn't have to interview, but but here we are. Um, well, I guess if, if the more we talk about these things, hopefully there'll start to be some solutions that um, start getting embedded in the whole process. So that's the hope. Yeah, and it begins and ends with with communication. You, you hit it right on the head there, uh, without which we can't make any any type of uh, progress. As I noted in the earlier segment, Mary, I, I, might, I probably didn't hear it, um, but I was taken aback by a, a number of articles that I pulled off the Internet and, and, in, and in the newspaper, one of which I talked about, which happened down in Martha's Vineyard, which I'm sure you're aware of, sure. where two high school players from Martha's Vineyard attacked uh, officials uh, at the end of a uh, at the end of a game where a penalty kick was called with uh, 15 seconds left to go in the game, and um, you know that 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 you know was was just one story from many. But going back a little bit, um, being the newspaper junkie that I am, I, I get the Globe and uh -huh. the Patriot Legend, what have you, and I'm flipping through the sports page, and there you were uh, at the top of the fold, and I'm looking at it right now. Why I stopped officiating soccer, and right. Mary, Mary I, I was taken aback by that. I really, I'm sitting in my chair, and I literally. Plop back in my chair. I'm like, well, wow. Um, so right. I, I would like, I don't want to steal any of your thunder. Um, please share with my audience the gist of that op-ed and this kind of the story behind the story, if you will. Sure, sure. I'd love to share that. So um, originally I had received an email from a former official colleague who gave my name to the journalist who wrote, the, wrote, it, wrote an article that happened to be on the front page. Um, he had reached out to me, um, he had heard that I had some different stories and just wanted to kind of check in about, you know, my experience for his story. And through the process of telling him about, um, some of the, um, experiences I had, had negative experiences I had gone through, he, he and his sports editor asked me if I would be interested in writing a personal essay. And so this is kind of a practice I have when I officiate. If I have a game that has some sort of striking element or lesson, I will go home and I'll write a personal essay about my experience. And, it, and I don't really do anything with it, but it, it would either be addressed to the coach or to a player or to a bystander or to my partner. And just kind of gives me, it's kind of like a journal. And so I, I told them I'd be happy to write this. And um, the, the story was actually sort of a, a combination of a couple different situations that I had experienced on the field in the prior couple of years. Um, this would have been the 10th year that I had officiated soccer. And um, prior to that, I've been, I've been pretty much playing my whole life. So it's a game that I truly love. And, and I really enjoy working high school games because I, I'm a teacher. I just, I, I know that my experience as a teacher really can translate onto the field as well. And so um, what I started to notice was that the, the rage that you would feel from the spectators and from coaches would really translate over to the players. And um, that's when I, when I started to realize that I really, I couldn't look away from it. I, I could feel it on the field and, and the, biggest tragedy of that whole thing was the, the kids on the field, if they are feeling like it's the official's fault that they're not being successful, whether it's in a play or in a game, then they lose all accountability. And that's where you, that's where you learn all, all the lessons the game has to offer, from character building to team building to 
um, personal responsibility, um, all the things that make the game worth playing. And so when I started to realize that and realized how every time I stepped on the field without having someone address it, including myself, I was really sort of a complicit player in the whole situation. So I told my, um, I had told a number of people that I was considering giving up officiating for this reason. So it didn't happen. It wasn't just one game that made me um, move in this direction. It was sort of the culmination of a season where I felt like I just, um, I, I wasn't being heard. Um, and so being a, a woman in this also, there, is, there aren't as many women as there are men, clearly, who are officiating. And that's, you know, something that I know many organizations are working on and trying to get more women and, and um, much more diversity into this profession. But until they really address the issues with abuse, it's just it's going to be really hard to address that um, that disparity in numbers and, and diversity. So so when I, you know, when I realized that, I said, that's it. And uh, I sort of walked away, and, and, and I didn't really hear much from anybody until this year. That it was about a year went by um, until this article came out. And, and I have to say I've had just a flood of support in terms of other people who have gone through the same thing and um, really just sort of at a loss as to how to band together to address it. Um, you know, there are so many education programs out there. There's zero tolerance. There are all these different things, but nothing's really working. And so it's really we got to look at this from a different angle. So that's that's kind of where it all came from. Yeah, you know, in in your your part of of many who are who are leaving the profession or, or leaving you know being being uh, sports officials to the point where there's there's a shortage, as you very well know. I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, right. There's just a shortage across our country and every sport because, you know, let's get right to it, Mary. Who the heck wants to be, you know, abused in in in, well, in that environment? It. You know, who the heck wants to yeah. put them? And for and you're not making a whole boatload of money. You're not going to pay your mortgage, you know, right. for the for the money you're making for these uh, for these for these games. Um, yeah, it's true. And and the reality is, when when someone like me leaves the game, I mean, I I also I was a mentor, and I had. I had um, officiated the the um, girls' fi state final the previous two years, so when you replace somebody like me, you're not you're going to lose a lot more than just an official on the field. So you know there it it's it makes it much tougher when people are leaving that have had these experiences because you lose so much more than just a body. You know you lose those people who bring the next group of officials up through the ranks um i think that that's one of the toughest parts and i think I, I think sometimes people don't really understand that i think the way that we need to address this as officials and as coaches and athletic directors is to really help um get the bystanders involved the people who are standing on the sidelines the parents and i i don't think they understand the damage they do i think they think it's just part of the game so, in your opinion, when did you see a kind of a shift in the behavior amongst you know parents and, and uh, coaches and, and now players 
you know, relative to, to their their perceived right to, to act out inappropriately? Was there was there a, a, a moment like, oh my God, I, I've never seen that before. This is a first, or has it was it a gradual uh, acknowledgement of behavior that brought you to this point? When when did this shift in behavior when did it all occur? Well, I mean, I don't really have any hard evidence, but my gut tells me that as the um, as the youth sports movement and all the the club the club ball, regardless of what sport you're talking about, because we know this is a pervasive issue across all sports, right? Um, as soon as that started to happen, and there were so many more kids who were involved, and so many more parents who were involved, um, you you're it's harder to cover all those games, number one. So you're, it's just explosive. Um, I think that was sort of the, the beginning of the problem when um, people started paying, people started, you know, you have a lot of elite teams, but really you're a coach, you know you only have so many elite players. And so situation, that, that type of situation where there were just an overwhelming number of teams and, and the expectations when you – when you join a club where you feel like you are playing at a high level, sort of the expectation is, I must be an elite player. So I think that might have had something to do with it. I mean, it, it's certainly coincided with what we're seeing in the last 15 to 20 years. You know, you touched upon a, a big issue there. Um, you know, this perceived idea that a lot of these kids have, and parents as well, but the kids think, well, I, I played for XYZ, you know, premier you know, club. Uh, right. I played for XI, XYZ Elite Academy. And, you know, I've been at this a long, long time, Mary. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you can slap premiere uh, as part of the, the name of your club, but it, it, it don't mean that you're premiere, you know. Exactly. Um, and then the reality of, of, of all these clubs that, you know, they have to fill out rosters. And if, you, right. and if you've got, you know, say 20 kids and you've got, you know, 12 that are legitimately high-level players, guess what? Those last eight, they're not yeah. of the, they're not of that level, but you got to fill out a roster. But it it, it it sends a false sense of reality to these to these kids that they think, well, I played for Premier Soccer, and then when they right. get on the high school field, they do have this inflated ego, this uh, that they think they're better than what they actually are. And then to right. get a, a difficult call from a referee or or, or something else, um, they they then act out. Um, or they simply don't make the team, which is also devastating for sure. a kid who has created their whole identity around playing this game. So one of the other problems with, with all of those teams is that, you know, it used to be when you put a team together, you'd have a couple of kids who were the elite players, you'd have a big body of sort of regular players, and then you'd have some stragglers, right? Well, when you create these elite teams at such a, lo at such a young age, and you're pulling all of the leadership and putting them together on the field, you really kind of create this Braveheart situation where those kids should really be leaders of different teams and have have all different types of players on their team. When you put all the leaders together on one team in a fifth grade uh, fifth grade um, team or a sixth grade team, I think that's really confusing for kids. Um, I, I think that should happen eighth, maybe ninth grade, where you're really striating those teams and and making um, you know, making teams based on um, absolute level of play. So I think that, you know, for kids can be confusing, at least from my perspective as a teacher. <laughs> so, teacher, I'm glad you, you will segue right from there. 
Do you see, and I think I already know the answer to this, do you see similar behavior uh, taking place in our school systems? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I teach physical education, and, and I can see certain kids who identify as soccer players or basketball players. It's hard sometimes for them to be playing other sports and be challenged. You have some kids who don't even want to, they, they don't even want to play anything else. They, they will sort of avoid, they don't work as hard if they're, if they're a soccer player sometimes. You, and this isn't all kids, but you'll see them, they, they're really, you know, hesitant because they're not good at it yet. And so, you know, we really try to promote that thinking of, think of yourself as an athlete because, you know, when you're a kid, you're not, you're not exactly sure what sport is gonna, you're going to be best suited for. And there's a lot of different sports out there. So um, I think it, there's just, you know, that also speaks to something we talk about all the time, which is the pressure that our kids feel, whether it's on the field or in the classroom. Um, it's just, it's too much. As we spoke before we went on the air, you and I were talking, about, I was a former physical education teacher myself. I, I left the, the profession about 15 years ago. Uh, I put 24 years in, and I left, as you and I spoke about earlier, I, I left you know, right at the kind of the very beginning of all of this, uh, you know, we were just getting computers on our desk. It was in those early days, oh, right. wow. you know, so, you know, yep. technology had not arrived. It's, you know, there were no such thing as cell phones and anything that's, that's you know, yeah, sure. pervasive in, in schools now. But you kind of saw, you know, the, the, the beginning of the end. So I want to kind of, with that, I want to kind of tie in this idea of, you know, what's happening in our schools, what's happening on our sports fields, because they are, they are intrinsically aligned here. You know, Mary, as a teacher, you know, kids aren't born this way. Kids aren't born bad. Kids aren't born, you know, to misbehave. Uh, they are a product right. of their upbringing. They're a product of their uh, uh, domestic environment, their home life. Uh, mm -hmm. How much of this should we be shifting on the shoulders of parents? And how much of this should we, we be dropping on parents in terms of them shaping up to raise children to act uh, in a more appropriate manner? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's that's huge. I mean, you know that as far as the amount that should be shifted, it should, a huge amount should be shifted to families and, and also to coaches. Because if you're, if you're taking on, I mean, the, the responsibility for parents is obvious, but if you're taking on the responsibility for children in terms of a coaching standpoint, you need to understand development, child development. That's a big part of being able to reach these kids through your coaching. Um, as a teacher, I'm sure you know your brain, brain development. So for kids, brain development, their emotional part of their brain develops really quickly, the amygdala. And that's all your impulsivity and your um, judgment and your decision-making is really at a really low level. And you, your, your executive functioning with your frontal cortex, right, that takes almost 25, 30 years to fully develop. So if we know that going into training and, and coaching our kids, the expectations should be much different. But I think sometimes we treat these kids like they're little adults out there. And, you know, perfect example, you started out talking about these kids um, in Martha's Vineyard. Well, certainly they are responsible for their own behavior. And when they, when they push a an official, they have to have major serious consequences. But the reality is, if you look at the culture of the game, it's not a surprise that that would happen. And so as parents and as coaches, 
we need to anticipate not only the our, our entire team but in particular the kids who who struggle with that they need they need to be you know protected so these kids lost a full year of athletic participation and the coach and and I don't know all the specifics about what happened but the coach lost two games so i mean there when you're talking about shifting responsibility i think you know that's part of the conversation in terms of what happened um in Martha's Vineyard you know, I'm going to vent here. I'm going to vent because I'm talking to a teacher, and you, you, you're going to get this. It always cracked me up when I was teaching. Um, you know, when you had a kid in your class or that that was, you know, uh, not one of the stellar kids, a bit of a pain in the butt, shall we say? Uh-huh. And you know, when Mr. and Mrs. So and So would call up and they want a meeting with you, and they would walk into, and I'm, and I'm, I'm having flashbacks, Mary, as I tell you this stuff. Sure. Um, they walk in. Like your, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, and yeah, they walk ahead. into my office and they go up one side of me, down the other, and uh-huh. you know, I used to stop them. Um, I, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the first time you've met me. Right. You, you don't know anything about me. You've never seen right. me teach. You, you know nothing about me. But somehow I am responsible for the for the misbehavior of your child. And that is not the case. Um, right. and, and parents were always taken aback by that, you know, because it, it had to be Mr. Pacini, you know. And I'll be right. honest with you, I was, I was uh, you know, a strict kind of guy. Uh, uh-huh. I, be- I believe kind of in the old fashioned sort of things like, you know, like respect and hard work and accountability, sure. you know, those type of things. Uh-huh. And I would hold kids accountable like I do even today as a, as a you know, as a soccer coach. Um, and, and, and a lot of times kids would push back for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then, yeah, they'd come in and they'd point the finger at me and I would just push right back. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a- astonishing to me. Um, right. You know, I want to touch upon something so very important that you brought up. Um, as you know, I'm a coach educator with United Soccer Coaches. I've been doing it for a bazillion years. And one of the most important uh, segments of our particular of our grassroots courses um, is human development. We talked about, you know, the, the physical growth and mental growth, cognitive, socio-emotional, um, uh-huh. and, and, and making sure the coaches that are uh, attending the course understand that you, you teach, you coach, within the capacity of their where they're at in terms of their human development you don't teach from an academic point of view you don't teach advanced algebra to a kindergartner because right. that's not where they're at in terms of their human development we call it competency-based coaching basically you're coaching within the competency of the child in terms of where they're at in terms of their human development um yep. and for me mary and this resonates with you for me it's the most you know arguably from the, the games and the x's and o's and all the stuff other stuff that i will, I will instruct this part, arguably for me, is the most important. You've, you've got to know, you know, I call it knowing the nature of your beast. Right, uh, right. It's, it's so true. And I, I think I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts with um, Sky, um, Sky Eddie, Eddie Bruce. Bruce. Yep. And, and you talked about that, is that, you know, there would be coaches who are high-level coaches, but they're coaching kindergarten games. And that's there's a disconnect there. I mean, you, you need to be suited for what you're, you know, what what you're presented with, um, and that's that's not always the case. So, well, that's yeah. that's that circles back to clubs and their marketing. You know, they'll market it. Well, you know, our we have coaches. They're a licensed, or they have their premier diploma, right. and they're going to coach your your ten year old, your twelve year old. And it's like, well, no, right. that licensure is reflective of their capacity to coach senior level players and eleven aside. You know, right. my, my right. when I go out and do this stuff, whether it's under the formal guise of a coach educator with United Soccer Coaches or the other work that I do, I always tell people that your soccer organizations, your club organizations, should like a look should look like a good school or good school system. In other sure. words, you've got teachers who are certified and qualified at the age group 
that they're that they're you know that they're teaching. Uh, you should have an administration that is uh, expert in that age group that's in the in the school. There should be you know uh, there should be care and concern. There should be a challenging and fun environment. Uh, just like any good school, your club right. should look the same. Um, right. And and that's, I think, U.S. soccer has sort of fallen. I mean, hopefully, it sounds like organizations like yours are getting back to that, but that seems much more like a European model where you're definitely focused more on development over, over some of the things we're seeing on the field as officials, which is, you know, winning. Well, welcome to America, right? You know, winning <laughs> winning is everything. Yeah, right. certainly in, in first world soccer nations, as I like to refer to them, it's all about development. Uh, if you're right. senior, if you're a club and your senior team is not performing well, you know they don't focus their entire attention on the on the first team. They look at the de- the developmental process and what's happening developmentally from the youngest to the oldest, and that uh-huh. includes countries. When their national teams don't do well, you look at the player development systems and schemes that are in place, and and you. You know, you improve them. Uh, you improve them. Yeah, it's development first, and if you develop, if you develop correctly, the winning takes care of itself. That's uh, it. That's it's winning should be a symptom of um, of a well coached team for sure. There's no there's no question. Um, let me ask you this one. Um, do you think this is part? And, I, and this is kind of a loaded question. I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. Do you think this is part of a broader a broader issue of our our civic discourse? Which has become so abrasive, um, you know, is is this just part of what we're seeing nationally uh, in terms of our, our civic discourse? I, you know, that's you're you're hitting on the third rail there, right? <laughs> yes, so I am. People don't don't necessarily want to admit that. I think, but I think it's hard to really be an informed person and not see a connection to that um, in terms of the entitlement people feel to express themselves, even if they're negative or um, if they're, you know, it's a lot easier for people to speak out because they're seeing, um, they're seeing that modeled out for the, in the people that we typically look to for direction, right? Um, I mean, it's, it, I agree with you. Without without getting too much into it, I, I completely agree that it is a it is a part of the bigger picture, yeah, and, um, and we got to get back to civility. We're tiptoeing around politics, aren't we? We're tiptoeing. Yeah. That's okay. Well, today is a tough day to do that, right? It is I a tough. T- <laughs> it is a tough day to do all that. Uh, uh, I won't get into my politics, Mary. Um, we'll go. We'll go off on a, a serious third rail. Um, there you go. You know, so we're talking about a, and I, and I think I, I in, in previous uh, interviews I've, I've heard you do, you talk about a toxic culture and, and, and indeed we are sadly talking uh-huh. about a toxic culture and we've touched upon, you know, the things that are contributing factors to that. So let's, let's, let's think forward. Let's think positively. How do we fix this? How do we make this uh, go away? How do we, how do we fix this problem? So I think when you, when you look at the problem, if, it, if you're looking specifically at the abuse issue that officials are facing, the, the one thing that the officials' organizations have going for them that we haven't really um, talked about is that they're monopoly. In every sport they do, the officials' organizations are a monopoly. It's the only place that you can go to get officials is through your assigner. Okay? And there's a limited pool of officials and they all work for the same people. So if officials organizations came up with a system where they 
um, had policies in place for certain teams or certain um, districts, then the schools would have to abide by them and find a way to um, to manage it or the clubs or whichever level you're playing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be assigned officials. And, and I think what makes it difficult for that is for that to happen is that the officials organizations are largely um, volunteer organizations, a lot of them. A lot of the officials organizations are run by mostly volunteers, especially at the high school level. So you have assigners who are paid to do their job, but the organizations that sort of maintain and um, develop and rate and certify officials are, you know, run by a handful of people who aren't really making any money from it. So, I mean, there's something there that could happen, the officials organization. I think that that would be the first step. So I've been on a high school athletics where I started as a high school coach you know, a thousand years ago and spent most of my life as a college coach, head college coach. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit out of the loop here. So if I understand you correctly, you're telling me that the MIAA is not the, the Massachusetts Intercollegiate Athletic Association is not the uh, vehicle by which uh, officials are assigned. There, there are no. independent groups or individuals. So help, yeah. help me through that. So for instance, um, with, with soccer, I had, uh, I had one main assigner who was an independent um, contractor to our officials, the Eastern Mass Soccer Officials Association. He was an independent contractor, and I'm not sure if they paid him or if he just received a fee per game assignment. I know he, he they all receive a certain fee per game assignment, um, but they are independent to the officials board. The officials board has a typically has a liaison between the MIAA and the officials board, but there are officials boards for basketball and volleyball, for women's lacrosse, that's the, um, the one that I'm currently the, the ratings and development coordinator for, for lacrosse. Um, we're completely independent. We're just a, um, I don't know, I guess we're a nonprofit, but we're all volunteer. The entire board is a volunteer board. And I know when, when I was on the soccer board, it was the same thing. It was, it was just volunteer, um, volunteer, volunteer run. Would, so, yeah. Would it make more sense, uh, and, and I apologize for not being in the loop here, would it make more sense if the MIA just took the bull by the horns and under their umbrella, they are the, the uh, mechanism by which you, you attract officials, you train officials, you disperse officials, you hold officials accountable, would that be right. an avenue to go to well, help this? I mean, I think, you know, I think there could be some um, benefit to that if the MIAA wasn't, you know, struggling with some of the issues that they've been struggling with um, in terms of their credibility. They, you, you say, if you've looked at the paper, they've had some issues. Um, and, and in the article that I was, I was in um, a few weeks ago, the MIAA basically there they said that they didn't believe that there was a problem with um, officials and abuse and parents and coaches on the sideline they figured they said that they felt like that has been sort of addressed and so I think they could be um, they could be somebody who could help that they, certainly they have the, the jurisdiction they cover all the schools um, but I'm not sure that they have the uh, person power or the 
really the um, the ability to do that at this point. No one can see this, but my jaw is like on the floor right now. The, the fact that they don't think this is, this is an issue. Um, they, they must live <laughs> under a rock. Um, yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm aware, even though I'm not, you know, coach collegially all these years, I'm still, a, I, you know, I read the paper and see things online. The MIA has its, has its ongoing issues. It seems like they never really go away. Right. So the first thing you talked about in terms of how we fix this is, is um, um, kind of taking a look at the, how we bring in officials and how we train them and um, and kind of breaking up this bit of a monopoly as you as you mentioned. Um, what about parents? How, now, how do we how do we go to parents? Because uh, we agree a little early on that you know these like I said these kids aren't born that way. Parents are certainly responsible for um, this behavior. What what do we do with parents? What what would be a, a tool or tools or an approach we we could implement to help parents through this through this issue? Right. So one of the things that I used to do if I was um officiating uh, for soccer or lacrosse a, a freshman or a JV game and and it wasn't too contentious at halftime I'd go across the field and I'd say hey parents anybody want to check in and um, find out about a rule that they're just not sure of or ask me any questions um, I'd be happy to answer your questions and you know it would start out one person would say something and then a couple other people and and we'd have a, a nice rapport and then sort of see I was, you know, just just like them. <laughs> and they it, it was a nice way to make connections. So things like that, number one. Number two, you could have um, parent liaisons for all of the teams. Uh, all high school teams should have at least one or two parent liaisons. Those people could make connections with the official, make sure there's a, a parking spot, make sure they know where the bathroom is. You know, there are little things that, that could happen, um, whether it's school run where they had a student do that or have parents do that, to just sort of start to build some um, culture between the officials and the schools and the teams. Because I think, you know, a lot of times officials will step on the field and, and you can see a coach will just, oh, they'll roll their eyeballs. They, they don't want to see a certain official or they don't want to. If there was somebody there to help sort of, bridge that gap, that might be another way to start to um, change the culture. Uh, one of the other things I thought might be a nice idea that I'm trying to work through um, my through the lacrosse board is in the off-seasons, officials can go and, and meet up with teams just to do the same type of thing, do and ask the ref, and um, just ask questions, and the official can say what they're there to do. And um, the students can ask questions of the official, but, but start, to, start to humanize the process. Because I think it, it's hard when officials step on the field and, and it's different officials all the time. You don't get to know each other. And it's, it's kind of like when you're in a car and you're, you, you, you know, it's easy to lay on your horn and give someone a, you know, flip someone the bird or whatever because they're anonymous. But once you get to know, you know, you start to have, connections, maybe it can start to break down these walls. Looks like anything else in life, you know, you, you get to know someone, um, you, you can understand them better. Right. You can understand them better. And this is this is certainly certainly no different. Um, parent code of conduct, a formal parent code of conduct. Do you think that's a appropriate for a for a school to have or a school system to have uh, where, you know, if you don't follow these, these set of rules and we're going to toss you. What are your thoughts on that? 
So I think, you know, and we'll go back to the teacher thing. Every day we say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the kids, uh, some kids stand, some kids don't, but it's sort of rote. Uh, I ask kids, you know, what does it mean to you to say the Pledge of Allegiance? And they're like, well, you know, it, I think if you're just, if it's just there and you're not really checking in on it and you're not really using it when things go, go wrong, then it's it's not really useful. It's just another it's it's just another document or list of rules. Um, I think you just need to keep checking in on it. The the, the idea is is it's a great idea to have a, a list that you can point back to. But um, if we're not holding people account accountable to it, it's almost worse to have it there because then you can say we have all these rules, but we're not. We're not doing anything to ensure that people are abiding by them. That's that's almost more harmful. And that's the most important part. You can have all the rules in the world, but if they're not, if they're not enforced, then they're. Well, imagine if we stepped onto the field and did that, and I just decided I wasn't going to enforce offsides this game, right? I mean, you, you can't you can't operate like that. No. But that's that's kind of how we're we're that's how we are operating. <laughs> so as as I hear you you talk about this. Um, are you, gonna, are you, Mary Fitzgerald, going to do something formally? Will you take this issue um, and, and I, I guess, taking the bull by the horns? I had mentioned the MIA doing some of this, but is, is this something you're thinking about? You, you formally doing something about this issue? Uh, will there be an effort? Will there be an organization? Will there be something that is formal that people can kind of look towards and embrace and use as a guideline going forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not really sure. I, I do have to say, you know, my, I don't think if, if I hadn't become an official, I don't think I would ever be right now working towards my principal certification. Um, I've learned so much from being an official in terms of character and finding my voice. And I, 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 and if you talk to any official who's been doing it for a while, they'll say the same thing. You have all these negative things, but, but you also can glean so much positive from it. Um, that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking now. My, my, um, my principal certification has really sort of emerged from the good and the bad that this has become, because I know moving into a, a, a leadership role in education, I can do more from there. Um, whether it's on the field, off the field, in the classroom, um, I mean, it, there's no lack of <laughs> place that needs attention. So you want to get into administration, huh? That's that's my plan. You know, you know, one of the things that I loved about <laughs> being a phys ed teacher, Mary, among other things, well, you could just throw on a sweatsuit or shorts right. and a t-shirt and my and my most comfy running shoes. Oh, it's uh, so true. Isn't that it's just wonderful? You know, and then you know, get to go outside on a beautiful day with the kids, and you want to trade that all right. in for a formal outfit and lock yourself up in an office. And uh, boy, you're a better person yeah, than no, I, Mary. I, I don't, I don't know. I think. <laughs> And that's the whole thing that is, is you, you can't lock yourself up in an office no matter what you're doing. No. You have to, it, at the end of the day, it all has to do with culture and making connections with people. And you need that. That's the only way to make sure that things are um, heading in the right direction. You can't do it from behind the desk, for sure. Well, being a principal, being a, an official in any sport has do the exact same thing. It's all about people management. Sure. Exactly. People management and situational management. You, you, you look at sports. I don't care what the sport 
An official is managing people and he or she is managing situations. And you as, as a, you know, soon to be uh, administrator, you'll be managing people, you'll be managing situations. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're bound rather, rather, rather closely. So do you miss it, Mary? You, you left. Do you, do you miss it? Oh, I miss it. Yeah, I, I really miss it. Um, it was tough heading into September when I knew, um, you know, I was going to have all this free time. That was a, that was the upside, but I definitely missed it. And I, you know, I drive by every field you drive by. It's full of kids playing. Um, but, you know, maybe there's uh, down the road an opportunity to get back if things start to get on the right path. But um, having having stopped doing it gave me this great platform to be able to sort of share my um, share my story. And, and I've made a, a bunch of connections. I, I actually reached out to the, um, the AD of Martha's Vineyard um, boys soccer team uh, a few days ago. And I mentioned to him that if those players were interested in becoming officials that I would help facilitate that. And he got back to me and said, you know, those guys are still processing this, but if, um, you know, if they're, they're open to it, then he'll let me know. And, and the official that was involved in that altercation was the first, my very first collegiate soccer game I did with him. Oh. So a lot of connections. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you, you touched upon something very important as well, and I do the same thing when I teach coaching education courses and I'm talking to groups. I talk about, you know, the next generation of coaches, and I always encourage uh, college coaches and I call encourage high school coaches to offer a coaching education course because uh-huh. uh, they could potentially be the next generation of, of coaches coming through the sport of soccer. You're, you're doing the exact same thing. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, by, by cultivating and in, in, uh uh, the, the next wave or the next generation of, of uh, soccer officials. So I think that's terrific. I think that part is absolutely, absolutely terrific. And I think, um, you know, once kids, because uh, I've taught coaching education courses to high school kids and college kids, and they have a whole new appreciation of what it means to teach the game. And in your case, I'm sure that we have a whole new appreciation of what it's like to manage an athletic contest. Um, sure. I, I think that's think that's great. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it, it's a win-win for everybody if if um, clubs start to teach officiating. Yeah. Well, Mary, I, I can't thank you enough for being on the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. This is the first time Mary and I have actually met and, and chatted. Um, I, I think your best days are ahead of you in terms of this. I really do. I'm not just trying to, you know, um, make you feel good. I think your best days ahead of you, the things that, you know, you might have left the soccer field, but these new doors are opening up where your impact because of your, of the situations and your experiences are, are going to, to do some, do some good, really do some oh, good. Well, well, thank you so much, Giovanni. I really appreciated being on your show and um, I love the work you're doing and uh, I would, um, I'm a big fan of yours, so I'm going to keep my ears open for, um, your upcoming episode. Well, thank. Well, you're the upcoming episode, but I'll give you a heads up on that. So you're you're next. You're on deck, Mary. As soon as I edit this uh, show, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna prop it up. Um, but uh, listen, let's let's make sure you and I stay in touch. This issue, at least in the short term, is not going away. And if there's any progress being made out there, I would love for you to call back in the show. We we can we can put it out there uh, amongst my audience and, and and keep it at the forefront of of people's uh, thinking. So uh, absolutely terrific. So my guest uh, in this segment was Mary Fitzgerald. Um, 
talking about her story about leaving the soccer field and, and the great work she's doing now and kind of changing our culture regarding uh, athletic behavior. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to a very short commercial break. And on the, on the other side, we're going to come back to our yellow card segment. And I think after talking to Mary today, I think you know where the yellow card is going to go today. So this is Giovanni Puccini. This is the GP Soccer Podcast. We're going to break for commercial. Please don't you go anywhere. In the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. UEFA B licensed coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center head coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced, and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the player's and team's development. The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the Soccer Coaches Toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of football methodology at Monaco said of the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of soccer development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the Soccer Coaches Toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coaches Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library. Hi, this is Candace Fabry, the owner and founder of Fearless and Capable. You're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with Giovanni Pacini. And there you have it, folks, a conversation I had uh, a few years back with Mary Fitzgerald. I, I thought it was very, very fitting. Again, I, I, I'm referring to it as a setup, I guess, uh, for the next couple of weeks. But I think it was very, very fitting uh, relative to the topics, uh, the topic violence in youth sports that will be uh, front and center on the GP Soccer Podcast on next week's episode and the following episode. Um, so many thanks once again for Mary Fitzgerald for quite a while ago for uh, connecting with me and uh, she and I having a chat. So my friend Rob Ellis is still away and uh, I'm hoping I can live up uh, to his great standards, but I certainly wanted to uh, you know keep, keep things going uh, with his great reports by yours truly doing the EPL and a European soccer report. A world record crowd of 77,390 people watched Chelsea beat Manchester United 1-0 in the Women's FA Cup Finals Sunday at Wembley in London. Sam Kerr's 68th-minute strike uh, proved decisive as Chelsea won the trophy for the third straight year to remain in contention for a league and club double. The sold-out final smashed the previous record attendance for a women's domestic club match 
when Atletico Madrid hosted Barcelona in front of 60,739 people in 2019. As well as winning three FA Cups in a row, Chelsea also has won back-to-back league titles the past two seasons. Chelsea is second in the Women's Super League, a point behind leader United, but with a game in hand. Barcelona won its first Spanish league title after after the departure of Lionel Messi with a 4-2 victory against Espanyol. Robert Lewandowski scored twice to lead the Catalan club to its first league title in four years. The title was secured with, uh, with four rounds remaining and two years after Messi left and the club's financial struggles. Alejandro Balde and Jules Koundé also scored for Barcelona. It now has 27 league titles, eight fewer than Real Madrid. The victory over city rival Espanyol gave Barcelona an insurmountable 85 points from 34 matches. Arsenal's Premier League title hopes are close to being extinguished after losing 3-0 to Brighton. Second-half goals from Julio Enciso, Denis Undav, and Purvis Estepunian consigned Mikel Arteta's once-long-time league leaders to a punishing defeat at the Emirates Stadium. The loss means Manchester City can be crowned champions with a win, with a win against Chelsea next Sunday. I, I've got to tell you what, um, this is commentary now. <laughs> I've got to tell you what, I've been following both uh, both ends, if you will, of the English Premier League, the top end and the bottom end, because I'm fascinated with relegation. But uh, boy, we saw Arsenal just uh, lose its its lead uh, in terms of the the, the, uh, the EPL. It was, you know, I don't know, eight, nine points at one point. Uh, and all of a sudden, it just kept chipping away, chipping away in five and three, then two. And then, you know, now you're sitting in second place. I just think the on the pressure, the ongoing, the ever-present pressure uh, that is Manchester City maybe kind of has has eaten away or did eat away uh, at Arsenal's overall collective psyche to the point where, you know, when uh, they didn't get a result and all of a sudden Barcelona did get a result and subsequently put them that much closer to uh, that first place position, uh, I guess they just you know have to. Suc- they just did. They succumbed to all of it. Um, I, I think it might be a lock. Don't don't hold me to this. But if I had a better nickel, I think you're going to see Man City, uh, you know, take uh, take the championship once again. Uh, on the bottom half, on the bottom end, uh, in relegation, you know, Southampton has been relegated, but this the last couple of spots there are, are still kind of up in the air. It all remains to be seen. So my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there you have it. That's our show for today. As I always say, if you like what you heard today, please tell everyone. You can follow the GP Soccer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Linktree, and on my website at gpsoccerpodcast.com. And don't forget to tune into Direct Kick every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. on WMEX AM 1510 here in Boston and streaming on WMEXBoston.com. This is your host, Giovanni Piccini, and I will catch you later. 